Hello, everybody. I'm Sean Reynolds from Sportsnet, joined by Ken Weeb from Sportsnet. Together, we are Kenny and Rennie, and this is the weekly Kenny and Rennie long-form show where we get to dig in with uh, some people, noted people from across the industry, and we got a great one for you today with Steve Wino from the Associated Press joining us. And after that, Dan Murphy from Sportsnet is going to join us. And Ken, you know what? Just a quick story off the top. Steve Wino is a guy I met indirectly <laughs> through you because I was down covering uh, a, a, a playoff series between the Washington Capitals and the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Steve Wino, who I always thought was Canadian, we'll get into why that was <laughs> later in the show with him, but he just came kind of walking from a couple sections over and said, hey, Sean, <clears throat> how, how's it going? Hey, do you want to come sit with us? you want to come have some beers with us after the show? And I was wondering, like, how's this guy know me so well? And so we spent the day kind of talking and then went out afterwards and <clears> – <throat> I, at some point, I, you know, I'd had a couple beers and I was a little brave and I was like, Steve, I, I, how, how do you know me? And he said, well, I, I actually don't. But Ken Weeb texted me <laughs> and said, my buddy from Winnipeg, Sean Reynolds, is there. Go be a good human to him. And that's exactly what he did. So it was a nice, classy move on your part. And Steve Wino is a great friend of yours. So I can't wait to see uh, you catch up with him throughout this. But before we get into that, he's going to join us in about three or four minutes from now. Before we get into that, uh, lots happening with the Jets this morning as they play their first game in a week against the Detroit Red Wings. Fill us in on what we can expect. Yeah, a lot of activity, uh, taxi squad and otherwise. A lot of folks uh, put into the roster here. We're going to see a couple of NHL debuts for sure in uh, Dylan Sandberg and Declan Chisholm on the back end with um, with Vili Hanel and Nathan Beaulieu. Uh, and Logan Stanley, all unavailable uh, today because of COVID. Now this morning, or Paul Stastny was added. He tested positive before he left. And also this morning, Eric Comrie and Brennan Dillon also testing positive. Uh, that means that Mikhail Burden will be the backup. Uh, Austin Pagansky will make his NH or his Jets debut. I apologize. He's played previously. But mm -hmm. the uh, UND product will be in the Jets lineup, conceivably on the fourth line. Uh, will be a little bit of a uh, scrambled eggs type of scenario for Dave Lowry when it comes to his forward units. But we know this is a team that's had a long break and they've got a few days off after this. So uh, I'm not saying it's not going to be a four-line game. But I think uh, because Jansen Harkins is coming back from COVID up front as well and Dylan DeMello on the back end, uh, there will be a little bit of a uh, shuffling of the deck kind of element, uh, which creates some opportunities for a bunch of people. I mean... Uh, if we're looking, bet reading between the lines from what Dave Lowry said this morning, uh, I think Cole Perfetti might be up with Mark Shifley uh, at some point, right? I mean, to me, he said, even though Perfetti had been with Connor and Dubois because Svechnikov has played with them before, uh, to me, I what I heard was that either Perfetti or maybe someone like Jansen Harkins could see a bump up uh, with Andrew Kopp and Mark Shifley. Uh, and we know, too, Adam Lowry's line is probably going to be uh, in flux, if you will. Uh, maybe Tony Notto, Tony Notto will start there, but there'll be a bunch of different guys kind of cycling through. And this is one of those nights where if you're going, you're going to play, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's one of those scenarios. And then on the back end, excited to see Dylan Sandberg with Neil Pionk. The, uh, the folks in Hermantown, mm -hmm. uh, Minnesota will be definitely excited and crowding around their televisions, uh, to see a couple of alums playing not only in the same lineup, but on the same pairing. Isn't uh, that something? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. You think of how small the town is and um, it's just a glimpse into the future. I mean, this is something where 
Uh, Dylan's kind of like a stay-at-home guy, but a big, strong guy who's also mobile. Uh, eventually, he could be used in a shutdown role. So I could see him being a longtime partner uh, for Neil Pionk at some point. I mean, not immediately, but we're going to get a glimpse of it tonight. And Declan Chisholm is a great story, uh, Sean. I mean, fifth-round draft pick, a uh, guy who was basically all offense uh, in junior for a long time and then his you know, last year or two in Peterborough really started to work on the defensive part of his game and I've been trying to explain to people that he will be similar to a guy like a Jay Bomeister, not a physical guy but a guy who defends with his body positioning because his feet are so active and he has an active stick so um, I mean he's a guy who can get up the ice he's got a good you know his offensive game is very good as long as he can defend efficiently uh, he's a guy that could you know, also be, he's one of those unsung prospects, Sean. He's not a high profile guy, but he was really um, moved up the, moved up the ranks in the last couple of years here. And one of those, a, a vintage Jets kind of sleeper pick, a guy that is a, it'll be a little bit yeah. late developing, but a guy who could really make an impact uh, down the road here, even though we know there aren't a lot of openings on the back end right now. Like things change quickly, like nothing is permanent, that old Paul Maurice line. So uh, I think it'll be fascinating to see uh, how these guys play. And there too, I mean, as Josh Morrissey said, nobody is going to be feeling sorry for the Winnipeg Jets. And what we should also say, Sean, and there's a great example of it right before our very eyes last night, because of what's happening with the Jets, it's impacting the Moose. What happened with the Moose last night in a game where they had almost, you know, maybe a handful of regulars playing, they earn a 2-0 shutout. You know, Mikhail Burden pitches his first shutout of the year, and Pagansky, I think, got the game winner. But uh, it's one of those nights where Connor Hellebuck will will be tasked with playing extremely well. Uh, you have a leadership group that is going to need to lead, and then you have a bunch of young guys looking to make their mark. And uh, we talked about what the impact would be having a new interim coach and Dave Lowry. Well, here's your chance. I mean, it's unfortunate for guys like Vili Hanela who have been waiting patiently, yeah. but COVID doesn't discriminate, right? I mean, the timing, you don't get to choose the timing. But, uh, I mean, it opened up a couple of doors for some other players, and let's see how they handle it. Well, I'd say this. The Jets need to look at this as an opportunity because we know every team is going to have a bite out of their season taken from COVID. And uh, you, we, I can tell you right now, Ken, when the end of the season is over and we've tallied up all the points, there's going to be times that a team looked back and saw, you know what, COVID took a bite out of us and that cost us a game here, a game there. And those are the points that had us miss the playoffs. So I think if I'm a head coach, what I'm trying to sell my team on is, listen, how we respond to this may be the difference between us making the playoffs and not making the playoffs. Because if we're that team that didn't allow COVID to get us down and we went and we took that two, four, six points that, you know, the COVID schedule basically told us we were going to lose. If that's the difference between us making and not making the playoffs, uh, that the, the stronger team wins in that case. All right, we're move away from that and we're ready to bring in our good friend Steve Wino, who Steve, I was telling Ken right off the top of the uh, of the program here. I don't know if you're watching, but when I first met you, I thought you were Canadian, and that's clearly because you used to write for the Canadian press. I will give you honorary Canadian citizenship because you're nice enough and polite enough to be, no doubt. But uh, how does an American writer end up writing for the Canadian press? Well, Sean, thank you for the compliment. A great compliment. Um, I, I got really lucky. And, and, and like that's my, one of my favorite saying in life is it's better to be lucky than good. Is I just I just happened to 
I, I knew Chris Johnson really well when he moved on to Sportsnet from Canadian Press. And I was fortunate enough that, that Julie Scott, who is uh, still the best boss I've ever had, uh, was willing to take a chance on an unproven American at, at 27 years old to be a hockey writer in Canada. And, and fortunate enough along the way that I already knew Ken a little bit from time in Washington and playoff series and all that. So it was, uh, no, it was, I, I got really lucky, basically, is the, is the, is the short answer. Uh, the beautiful part about the show, Stephen, we like to dig a little bit deeper. I mean, we know you're at the with the Associated Press now and uh, award-winning journalist, but uh, how did you get the bug and uh, maybe uh, let our listeners and viewers know uh, the early days of the of your journalism career and, and what kind of drew you to hockey eventually? Well, I mean, for me, it was always hockey. Like, like my mom likes to say that I was watching in Game 7 of the 1987 Cup Final on her lap. Uh, where the Oilers beat the Flyers and it broke her heart forever because she just hasn't been able to love a team since that Ron Hextall year in, in I guess it was I guess I was eighty six sorry All right, well, yeah no eighty seven yeah it was that, the year, so I was a young kid watching then and, and when I was in uh, I guess kindergarten something like that four or five years old I wrote a letter to, to then Flyers owner Ed Snyder about wanting to be a broadcaster and and uh, and Doc Emmerich who was the Flyers broadcaster at the time wrote back to me invited oh. my family and I up to the booth up at the old spectrum. So I got to meet Doc Emmerich at five years old. The photo exists somewhere. And, and we've been family friends ever since. My mom baked, baked some brownies and, and took brownies to, to the press box at Brendan Byrne Arena in New Jersey when he was working there. And, and I just got, got to put on a Stanley Cup ring after the Devils won in the, in the mid-90s. And so having known Doc Emmerich and just kind of being around hockey, that's that's what got me into it. And, and like, same thing. Like, it's, sometimes you get a good bounce here and there. I've gotten good bounces along the way to be able to to graduate from the University of Maryland, and and Corey Mastisak, our, our old friend, took a job uh, at, as the Capitals writer at the Washington Times. I moved on to the desk, started working some some backup shifts for him, those sort of things, and eventually led me to here. And and it's just it's been a, a wild ride, and sometimes you need good bounces to get there. Doc Emmerich is a guy that I've been saying to Ken, we want to get on this show. Uh, and I've been saying He's that for a long time. I, well, I, I want you to give me an idea because I remember I, for a guy who is as into hockey as I was growing up, it wasn't until like the mid-90s I'd already graduated from high school. Uh, and then uh, NBC would always put on those Saturday games. And Doc Emmerich would pop up in those. And we, you'd always be, because, you know, I, I hate to say it, Steve, but as Canadians, you've got this little bit of a, oh, we're up here when it comes to hockey and everything's no, really? down there. So, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you've been through these arguments before. We've had enough years to argue about this. But I remember as a, as a hockey fan watching and being like, you know, thinking their their broadcasters aren't going to be anywhere near what our broadcasters are. And then listening to Doc and being like, holy smokes, I love the way this guy calls a game. Give us an idea. You know, we know the significance he's had in your life. Give us an idea of the significance he has to U.S. hockey. Yeah, he was always the voice of U.S. hockey to me. And and, and it was when he and, and John Davidson were partners uh, at times. He, he's done... He's done. He's done it with multiple partners over the years, and Eddie Olchick. But he he just had a way of describing hockey to the the casual fan and the avid fan at the same time. And I know Pierre mm-hmm. Maguire always got a lot of crap for like being too inside baseball with knowing every junior team and this and that. But Doc has always wanted to make sure that anybody who flipped on the TV knew what was going on. So you could get a, a detail if you're a hardcore hockey fan, and you could get a detail if you've never watched hockey in your life. 
which is why him doing things like the, the Winter Classic, the outdoor games, was so important because you had people flipping on the TV who had never watched hockey before. And for all the stupid ideas that U.S. hockey's had, like the glowing puck and things like that, having Doc Emmerich as the face and voice of, of hockey in the United States, I don't know if it brought people in, but if you turned it on and listened to him, you would be sucked in. And I think that's, to me, that's his, his importance to hockey in the United States is, is he was a, a comforting voice and, and, and somebody who did the job well that no matter what your level of expertise in hockey or, or viewing was, whether you'd played for 15, 20 years, whether you'd never seen hockey in your life, you could watch and enjoy a Doc Emmerich broadcast. One of the beautiful things I love about the show, along with connecting with our friends, is that you learn something new every day. So for me, Stephen, I've known you for a long time. I had no idea that we shared another similar passion, that we our original goal was to get into broadcasting. Uh, I don't, you know, not a lot of people know this except my close friends, but I used to call play-by-play games off the TV uh, when I was in college and, and a frequent healthy scratch at the University of Regina. But uh, how did you transition from that chase to the writing side? And were you a guy who... Uh, thrived in English or, or how did how did that side of it come come about for you? So I was in college and I was doing a radio show basically by myself for a lot of times and I would have guests on as much as possible people with Maryland connections or people at ESPN whoever I could get on to talk about Maryland sports and horse racing and whatever and I remember I wanted to be Tony Kornheiser like that that's essentially what I wanted to be was that he was it was the height of, of PTI and his radio show and writing for the Washington Post and I had a professor, an advisor say, if you want to do that, do, do the writing thing and, and go into writing first. Start with start with the writing aspect and then kind of move on from there. And, and I, I still like to say that I have a face for radio and a voice for print. So it, 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 it just this, sometimes it chooses you. Right, Ken? Like so, like sometimes what you want to do, it's like I, I'm good at something. And if you realize that you're better at the writing aspect. And I still love doing radio, hosting a podcast now with Carl Alsner, which I never thought would happen. And, and doing things like this is, is enjoyable. But I just, there's something about writing that, that you talk to athletes about it. There's a natural like gift or kind of a skill to it. And so I, I started covering football. I started covering actually swimming and track and field and lacrosse at the Diamondback newspaper at Maryland, which fortunately paid us, which was really nice. And, and got to do kind of kind of be around the sport and travel and, and, and be just around the business a little bit to where it, it just it felt natural. And, and, and look, if I had gone to a different school or if I chose a different path, I don't know where I'd be right now. But writing is just something that it's it's in my veins now, unfortunately, or, or for better or worse, it's in my veins. It, I think there's people kind of always end up where they're supposed to be because I'm the opposite of you guys. I wanted nothing to do with television or broadcast and all I wanted to do was write. And I got spit right in the opposite direction. Maybe it's because I'm not very good at writing. They're like, well, go where the dumb guys go into broadcast. But anyways, that's how that turned out. Ken, remind me, was it was it Frank Cervelli that Steve went to high school with? Or is that is that right, Steve? So There's a whole bunch of writers that kind of came out of your school. Okay, so uh, Pat Leonard covered the Rangers for a bunch of years. Mm -hmm. uh, myself, Frank Saravalli, and Charlie O'Connor, who now covers the Flyers for the Athletic, we all went to the same suburban Philadelphia Catholic all-boys high school, Holy Ghost Prep, within the span of about six to eight years. And, like, if this were a suburban – if this were Brandon, Manitoba, if this were Winnipeg or suburban Toronto, you'd be like, oh, of course, there, it turns into a bunch of, of NHL writers. But it's, for this suburban Philadelphia school, yeah, we, we've produced four NHL writers in the span of, of less than 10 years. That's absurd. 
<laughs> for sure. <laughs> for sure. And was there a, how about two? And even growing up in Philadelphia, were you a guy that consumed newspapers all the time as well? I know, like you said, Kornheiser, obviously. And as you mentioned too, like that stretch, he also had a, you know, stint in the booth at Monday Night Football, right? But when yeah. you grew up, were you a guy that was, con- I mean, for me, I had the Sports Illustrateds and the Hockey News and everything else. But were you one of those guys that consumed as much as you could as well? Yeah, both of those things, both of like the, ho- the hockey news and the sporting news. I don't think we had Sports Illustrated as a kid. I think it was one of those. We had the hockey news. We got the sporting news. And it was the, the Philly papers, which Stephen A. Smith wrote for the Inquirer at the time. Jay Greenberg, the, the late Jay Greenberg, who's, who's been terrific to me over the years. He was writing there. Also spent a stint in, in Toronto as an American and, and kind of a, a pioneer for, for people like me. And, and Bill Lyon was a, a columnist who I read a lot of in, in Philly. Plus also, like remember back then for me growing up, Bob McKenzie was writing for, for the Hockey News. Uh, Ken Campbell was like, I guess, starting to get into working for the Hockey News at that point. So it was good to have a lot of those people to read growing up and, and have an idea of kind of what goes into this. So we touched on this just a little bit earlier on, but I want to know if there's any difference that you find in writing for a Canadian hockey oh, yeah. audience versus a U.S. hockey audience and what that difference is. Yeah, no, there's. I think there's a huge difference. And it was it was part of the, the adaptation for me of going from, I was the Capitals beat writer at the Washington Times, writing for, A, a very niche audience for a team and a newspaper in a city, and also in a place that, look, it, it wasn't a traditional hockey town, but the team had existed there since the mid-70s. So it wasn't like you were writing for people who don't know the game. Then you go to Canada and it's like, okay, you can write it. The base of knowledge is different or, or the average base of knowledge to me is different for a Canadian audience because it's the national sport. And, and I feel like it's almost like writing for writing an NFL story in the United States in that more people who are going to be reading it will be people who are familiar with the sport. Now, there's still a certain level of like you're supposed to write at a fifth grade level and you're not using big words and those sort of things that I think you still try to write for people who have never seen the sport in their life, no matter what kind of happens. Just like Doc Emmerich with, with broadcast. I think there's a certain element of you wanted to, to cater to different kinds of audiences. But in the United States, to me, it's not that you dumb it down, but it's a little bit more of a you don't know what people's level of experience with the sport is. And maybe I'm I'm misjudging the readership that way. Uh, but I, I, when you're when I was in Canada, there's a certain level of granular you can get, and there's a certain level of granular that you that readers want you to get to in terms of some of the minutia and the details of things that maybe is not as big a deal in the United States, at least for hockey. Who are some of the other influences in terms of the storytelling style, Steve? Right? Because I mean, sometimes you you five W's and everything else, but in terms of, you know, feature stories and those sorts of things, uh, how did that side of things develop for you as well? Well, uh, George Solomon was a longtime uh, sports editor at the, the Washington Post, and I was fortunate enough to, to take a class with him at the University of Maryland and do like an independent study sort of situation with him after that. And so I think a lot of where my kind of storytelling comes from was shaped from that class and not just George, but Bill Knack was, was an, 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 author, an author who wrote books and, and these sort of things who came and spoke to the class. And Kevin Blackstone spoke to the class and, and just kind of knowing a lot of these people and, and hearing how they do it. And look, a lot of it's just figuring it out as you go along. And, and, and I know that's kind of basically every business and everything on earth is you, you make it up as you go along and your writing style is different than mine. And we all have kind of different ways of doing it. But I think early on it was reading Folks like you and, and Mike Zeisberger and Scott Burnside, people who are our friends now, but try to, to almost like 
steal ideas. Like I don't like plagiarizing material. If I'm writing a story about someone and I know someone else already did a feature, I'll intentionally not read it until after I write something. Cause I don't even want to unintentionally steal ideas. But I think at the time it was, you try to, and even now try to write, read a Nick Costanica, a, a Bruce Arthur, people who you know are better as writers than you are and try to kind of almost mimic some of those kind of writing styles because you're never just, one style for your whole life or her whole career. You're always trying to kind of figure out how can I do this better? How can I make the most out of my time? How can I use quotes better than, than I have before? And so to me, it's a mix of not reading too much because you don't want to get in your own head, but also trying to read a little bit of, of getting sort of ideas and, and borrowing ideas from people. Steve, the first time we met was during, uh, I think it was the uh, 16 playoffs 2015 2015 2015 okay oh, yeah. so it was no no it was that series between uh pittsburgh and washington and if you remember washington <laughs> was just all over yeah. all over pittsburgh and was just dominating them but pittsburgh would get the puck break out of the zone go down and score i still remember bruce arthur or bruce arthur harassing myrtle online saying where is your coursey god now myrtle it was, <laughs> it was hilarious anyways great great series it was my first time though ever being to washington and watching a game there and I was blown away. Awesome, awesome hockey town. And that was hammered home for me in 2017 when the Jets went on their run. Uh, and we had the big whiteout street party here. Washington goes on to win it. And we see all the video from them and the fans just packing the streets, you know, on their way to them winning the Stanley Cup and that celebration. So I was surprised because like you said, the the Capitals have been around for a long time. I never realized what a good hockey town that is. In your estimation, what makes Washington a unique hockey town? It's unique because you have different generations of fans. You have like the day one people who were season ticket holders at the old Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland, who have been kind of diehards with that awful expansion team and kind of saw the team almost moved at, at one point and, and, and in the 80s and and got to see kind of the David Poyle years and the Brian Murray years and, and just even the, the trip to the, to the cup final in 1998 when Dale Hunter was the captain. And I, you have that group of people. Then you mix in the people who as soon as Alex Ovechkin comes here and he just lights it up that you have an entire generation of, of people who then became Capitals fans. It's the kind of the rock, the red generation. Cause they went to the, to the back to the red, white, and blue colors and Ovechkin comes in and Backstrom comes in and they get really good. And, and that Boudreaux first year where he takes over on Thanksgiving day and, and leads them to the playoffs. And like, there was just magical moments over the years that you could have almost like the cynical old Capitals fans who just knew like were fatalistic. Like they knew things weren't going to go well. And then you had all these new fans who were excited. And then 2010 happens and they lose to Yaroslav Halak after having the best team in, in the NHL. And they get Halak over, a, they blow a 3-1 series lead. They lose a series they should win. And that entire generation of fans that were just like, oh, everything's going to go great. They joined the, the cynical fans of, oh, here we go again. And, it's, and, and then every year after that, it was like, oh, of course, of course, this team's going to lose. Something's going to happen. And they go and they lose to the Lightning the next year. And they lose to the Rangers and the Rangers again. And the Penguins and the Penguins again. But people didn't go away because the championship window was always open. And the atmosphere of the games is really fun. And, and I think that's something that that coming from Philadelphia where like I grew up seeing games the old spectrum when I was a, a really young kid in Wells Fargo Center. And just knowing how much people care, it, 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 was, it was reminiscent of that. It was different because 
I don't I think people care too much in Philadelphia. Like I think there's there's something to be said of like you actually invest too much of your time and energy in sports mm. than, than maybe you should. But interesting. You could and and it's a I guess a self-criticism too, which has helped get me to this point. But <laughs> I, I think in, in, in DC, the atmosphere is great, but you could tell, like I remember that playoff series, even the 2017 one, the 2016 and 17 against the Penguins, you could feel the crowd get tight. As soon as the Penguins scored a goal in that game seven you knew it was over because even if the, the players on the ice weren't completely done, the whole building went tight. And so it, it was such a change in 2018 when all of a sudden they didn't have to get to an elimination game on home ice until game six against Tampa Bay, but it just felt different. And, and for the, the building to feel different, I think a lot of it was Barry Trotz not giving a crap. And he was in his last year of his contract and coached looser than he ever had before. But it, it, you had a, an entire fan base of over decades hanging on like, is this the last chance? Cause everyone thought the window was closed. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think what makes that such a weird hockey town is just different generations of people. And, and now they've all seen a championship. They've had the parade. I was, I, I was, I was not in Vegas tonight. They won, but I was in the streets of Washington kind of among the crowd of people and, and seeing the parade. It, it was and for a city really that hadn't seen a championship since, since football in, in 1992, 93, it was it was almost like a sigh of relief that this this town and this team had finally won a championship, and I think Alex Ovechkin obviously deserved to win a Stanley Cup. Yeah, Ovechkin is, is such a great story, Stephen. I mean, I was so fortunate to be around him during that series that we covered together uh, in the early 2010. I think it was 2013 or 14. The biggest myth around Ovechkin was because of his love for hockey, people misinterpreted all of those Caps early exits with an Alex Ovechkin doesn't care because the next day he's on the first plane to the World Championship and then winning a gold medal with Russia. But being around him and watching him for that series with the Rangers, um, to me, I learned so much about his will to win and desire but, I mean, you were there following that in the years after, leading up to the Stanley Cup final. What's it like for you to see how he evolved as a leader, especially under Barry Trotz, who folks of Manitoba obviously hold in very high regard? Yeah, and it was never – and that's what I kept trying to tell people was it was never Alex Ovechkin's fault they lost a single playoff series. Like, it was never his fault. But I didn't – at some point, I wondered if the team was good enough around him to win. And, and you and that was something that after the Dale Hunter year in, in 2013, you're like, well, if you're going to play this style, you need a depth, a, a deeper team to win with him. But he, Alex Ovechkin did an incredible job of going from a guy who was almost figured out by the league at, at some point in, in kind of 2011, 2012 range to adapting his game first uh, under Dale Hunter and then under Adam Oates and then most specifically under Barry Trotz. And we're even seeing it now with him dishing the puck more. Uh, he's going to have maybe a, a career high in, in assists this year, but he was always the, the leader in by example. Like, he was never the, the vocal guy in the room. And I always said, like, Nick Backstrom should have been the captain. Like, but you, because of, of what people, what teammates see him as, as kind of the leader in the locker room and, and that sort of thing, even though he's not a rah-rah guy. But for to want to follow a leader on the ice, it had to be Alex Ovechkin. And, and, and in, in talking to teammates over the years, it was like everything he did on the ice, even if players couldn't do it themselves because they're clearly not as talented, the, the, the energy he put into it 
was always leadership capability. It was always the kind of the captain driving the play. And it's why, look, I had a vote for the Conn Smythe in, in 2018. And I know Evgeny Kuznetsov was a leading scorer on that playoff run. But Alex Ovechkin drove that team. Alex Ovechkin drove the bus on that team from being down 0-2 to Columbus to winning the Stanley Cup. And, and, and for as many points as Evgeny Kuznetsov scored over that and nothing against him, this, that was an Alex Ovechkin run. And, and we're seeing it now with, with him. He's a dad now. He, he's got his kid on the ice. He's putting up crazy amounts of points in addition to being in the, in the, the, the not only the Rocky Richard chase, chase, but the Art Ross chase this year, that he continues to evolve and doing things at 36 years old that we never thought was possible. Steve, you're nailing your analysis here. You go back to that 2011 <laughs> series. You're talking about the Caps getting hallocked. I, I do think that in that series where Washington uh, lost to Montreal, that the Canadians kind of showed the blueprint on how to shut Alex Ovechkin down. It seemed like that plagued him for years. I, I think you're entirely right. He found a new way to play the game, and that's kind of got him to where we see him today, which looks like he's not slowing down at all. I want to switch gears here a little bit. I know you're a beer lover. I am too. <laughs> Everywhere I go, I go to everywhere I am, I'll order a local IPA. I don't care what they bring me. I just want something local. In your estimation on the NHL circuit, what's the best beer city in the NHL circuit? That's the most on, on the spot I think I've ever been put. Um, <laughs> I, I need a second on that one because there, Boston's a really good one. And I spent a lot of time in Boston and, and, and I've been to a bunch of breweries there. I want to say Buffalo too. So having lived in in Western New York and and outside of Toronto, that's a good one. Canada's gotten better. There, 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 the amount of like microbreweries and stuff that we've seen pop pop up across Canada has been really good. But I'm actually going to go off off the board here. I think it's Seattle, and, and so I, I visited Seattle actually a, a couple of years ago before the, the team actually started playing. And the amount of breweries I could find within like walking or short Uber distance in Seattle was a complete game changer to me. And, and like, so Seattle, there's even if you're in that Pike Place area where the market is and they throw the fish and all that, you can find two or three breweries in walking distance of that. So from that'll be my surprise one. This is, I, I do want to write, I do want to write an eats and drinks of the, of the NHL book at some yes, point. And, and, and I feel like I could dive into this further as long as I have a gym membership and be able to work off all the, all those calories. <laughs> and we've got to get you back to Winnipeg too. The scene is, uh, is enhanced uh, quite a bit since the last time uh, you were through town. Um, no you mentioned a book, uh, Steve, you got a pretty <laughs> fun project that you just kind of uh, tied up at least the next uh, phase of it. Uh, what can you tell us uh, about that and when might it be released? Well, I wrote a book on emergency backup goalies in hockey. And and, and as people keep asking me about it, they're like, is it, is it really a book? And apparently it is. Uh, so uh, Triumph Publishing in, in Chicago, which has done all the kind of hundred things fans need to know before they die. They've done the, the Doc Emmerich book, the Eddie Olchick book. Um, and, and so spoke obviously to, to David Ayers, Scott Foster. I actually spent time with Scott Foster at a, at a brewery uh, in, near his home in, in Oak Park, Illinois, and, and sat there and talked for a good two and a half, three hours for this book and enjoyed some some flights of beer and those sort of things, which was fantastic. Uh, the book is out next fall, uh, somewhere in the, we don't have even a, a title yet. So that's how early we are in the process of, I just sent in the manuscript uh, of kind of all of these stories that even the, the guys in uh, Gavin McHale uh, in, in Winnipeg who dressed for for the Capitals and, and Brett Leonhardt who, who dressed for the Capitals for warmups and so many of these kind of near misses that have happened over the years. It's just one of the things that it doesn't happen in any other sport. 
the fact that you could have a guy who doesn't play in the league, who could <laughs> play in a game, and it could happen tonight. The Devils have an e-bug possibility uh, at the Islanders tonight, and I'm cringing at the possibility of having to write a new chapter. <laughs> Phenomenal. Um, your bio uh, says well, among the things that you cover, and there's a lot, uh, you cover horse racing. How does a guy get into horse racing? This is another story from my childhood. Um, so my grandfather was a teller at Philadelphia Park Racetrack for decades. So my dad would take my brother and I to the track, on, whatever, on, on Saturdays, Fridays, and, and just we would go to the track and like basically pick names and numbers and colors and whatever to, to bet on, on the races. And it was, it's very hard. It's a very hard sport to get into if you're not in it. And so for me, it wasn't that I was in it. It was just I was exposed to it very early. And along the way, I was fortunate to, to get enough places early on at the Washington Times. A colleague of mine who did it said, come to the Preakness with me, and, and I'll show you what this is like. And now I've covered the Preakness nine times. I just I, I love it so much. I As much as I love hockey, if I could do horse racing full time, I probably would. Uh, I just there, there's something about the the, the personalities and, and, and there's so much that goes into the sport beyond just the race days. I love the training mornings of just watching the horses train and get a bath and hang out by the barns and have a cup of coffee and talk to everybody. It's so relaxed. It, it's Saratoga, New York, maybe my favorite place on earth, just being able to go there for, for a week, two weeks every year. It's just it, it's it's a sport that a lot of people don't understand and 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 are are mad that it exists probably a lot in a large part i think because they don't understand kind of the entire ecosystem that goes into it and just how much people care about these horses and and, and some of the horror stories are bad but some of the great stories are phenomenal it's just there's there's so much so many stories of of from the jockeys the trainers the owners the grooms the the everybody around the barns the hot walkers it's just it's an incredible people industry and that's why that's why i love it so much I know you've been to the Belmont as well, but have you been to the Kentucky Derby? And is that on a bucket list uh, element it's, for you? It, it is, and, and I'm hoping to be able to cover it, if not this year, next year. It always the problem is the schedule. It always it always coincides with the the playoffs. So the Capitals, I don't know, they don't always make it past the first round of the playoffs, but they're usually in the playoffs. They, they they've made it almost every year for the last decade, and so it, it's hard to kind of to get away in the first week of May. I've done two Belmonts now, nine Preakness. But yeah, Kentucky Derby, sooner than later, I hope. Uh, one other quick one, Sean, before we uh, let him roll here. Uh, Stephen, you'll be going to Beijing. I mean, obviously the circumstances have changed, but, uh, you know, local element. I mean, Michael Frelick, former Jet, was added to the Czech roster today. What are you expecting, A, from the Olympic experience and B, from the hockey component? The, the hockey component to me will be very similar to 2018. And I was in South Korea for, for that Olympics as well. And and, and look, the Russians are, are favored because the KHL is going to stop. And you got so much homegrown talent there. Uh, guys, some guys we've heard of, Mikhail Grigorenko, Slava Voinov, uh, not quite the star-studded team as 2018 with Datsuk and Kaprizov, Kovalchuk, and, and just that insane, insanely talented group. I don't know what to expect of the Olympic experience because this is going to be a very different doing this in a pandemic in China where they're going to be testing us every day. We're going to go into isolation if we test positive uh, and go to the hospital for symptomatic. And it's a little terrifying just to, to not have the subject, just the, the unknown aspect of not knowing what that's going to be like. But it, there's still this, the Olympics are the best thing on earth. It's just, it's my favorite event ever to cover because you're in a place for two, three weeks with the same group of people and, and there's, and nothing in the outside world matters. And you're just, you're in your own kind of 
almost made up world. 2014 in Sochi was was unforgettable because we had a wine karaoke bar that everyone went to and the hockey was ridiculous and you had that US Russia shootout and 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 that dominant Canada team. But there's all I don't it'll be a different experience certainly than that or 2018 just because we're going to be kind of restricted and not be able to do anything. But I hope people watch the hockey because I think it's going to be good. And I say that as someone who's kind of biased because I'm going to be writing about it and I'll be, I'll be there, but there's going to be players people have heard of You mentioned Michael Froelich, uh there, probably Eric Stahl, probably a Devin Dubnik, uh, Eric Fair, uh, your, your, your buddy, our buddy, Eric Fair, uh, likely on the Canadian team. And it's not best on best. It's not the same thing as an NHL Olympics, but it should be fun. I hope it's fun. Steve, before we let you go, I wanted to get in on this because, you know, you've covered horse racing, jockeys, you've covered hockey. I know you cover football. Um, as a reporter, do you have to take a different tact with athletes from sport to sport to sport? A little bit. And and I don't know if it's, ta- I don't know if it's a different tact, but I think you expect different things. Like I, I, talking to football players, they're interesting. Hockey players, if someone's interesting, it's less, it's, it's more it's out of the realm of you don't expect that you don't expect someone because there's so much of a hockey culture that is the the logo on the front matters more than the name on the back and and not to stand out and it's the thing kenny you mentioned about alex ovechkin and well the criticisms about pk suban over the years is that individualism is so different then you go to cover like a tennis or a golf where you don't have any teammates so they will they will just curse off whoever they want because they're working for themselves so i think it's it's just a different mentality in every sport in that in basketball, you could have one player who could take over a game and, and, and be the key to a game. In hockey, it happens rarely. You could see McDavid have a, a monster game or Blake Wheeler have a monster game. But it's just so much a they don't want to talk about themselves. And then you go to, to football and it's like, well, you're kind of your own brand a, a little bit. Like, like even if you're, you're, you are part of a team that your decisions, it's almost like an individual sport like baseball is, too. It's an individual sport inside a team sport. And so I just think it's you ask questions differently, maybe because you expect different answers. And if you're pleasantly surprised by getting more out of somebody, then it's great. But, yeah, I, I think it's different because everybody who's, who's in a different sport, you're either raised a different way or you play different sports and, and kind of you have a different concept of, of what is expected of you. But it's just how much personality athletes, coaches are willing to show to, to, to us who are trying to ask questions and also what readers expect of, of and what readers and viewers expect from our coverage. Just before I let you go, quick one, one hitter here. What should the Washington football club be named? What should it be called or what will it yes. be called? Yes, what should it be called? They should be the Hogs. And, and, and the Hogs was the name of the offensive line that won the, the, the Super Bowls in the 80s and, and early 90s. If it was just the Washington Hogs or the Washington Red Hogs, that would be fine. I think it's going to be the Commanders. I think they really wanted to, to kind of lean into the military nation's capital thing. But Hogs would have been such a tribute to like the glory days of this franchise. Steve, I can tell you this. There's a lot of good guys in sports journalism. I'm not one of them, but I work with yes, one are. of them. Not even, not even Kenny holds a candle to you, Steve. You're one of the good ones. Uh, we so appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. And boy, you got me thinking about, I, I loved your answer on the Washington fan base. It was in depth. You broke it down. You got into the psychology. I want to do that with every fan base and kind of break it down. That's good stuff. Thanks so much for joining us. And we're looking to catching up to you soon. General, it was Thanks, my pleasure. General. See you, Steve. Thanks, guys.
And we're going to launch right into Dan Murphy. And Dan, I got to tell you, there was one of the most disappointing things in sports for that's happened for me for a while was when Andrew Cogliano's Iron Man streak got killed by him getting a suspension. You had a heck of an Iron Man streak going on here. I think I re read it had been two decades since you'd missed uh, a Canucks game or a Canucks broadcast that you were supposed to work. Um, how is it going with COVID and how hard was it to see that kind of a streak come to an end like that? Oh, I think we're having some audio issues here. Can you hear us, Dan? I think we're having a little bit of audio issues here. Stick with it for just a little bit here. We'll get it. We're, technical difficulties are part of the charm. We'll get this going. Yeah. I think we're a little bit frozen. Um, Ken, before, while we're waiting for this, to, here we go. Yeah. He's going to come in. A, hey guys. There you go. Can you hear Sorry us? about that. This is the hazard no of doing it on your phone, you know? This is how it works. Oh, someone, you... someone calls and I had to, it was probably just some person with a, you know, just one of those robot calls and I had to hang up on them and away we're gone. <laughs> what do we do? Um, did you Thanks hear my question? Us. I did, yes. So uh, yeah. basically I didn't have a full-on Iron Man streak. So I started in the 2001-2002 Canucks season. And up until the last game, I'd only missed two broadcasts and both were for emergency purposes. One, uh, my father-in-law was sick and so I tried to make it back from Tampa in time and I didn't quite, but I missed a broadcast. And then another time was a couple of years ago when Corey Hirsch uh, had uh, a death very close to him. So I flew with him from Florida to Phoenix and back, but I had to miss a broadcast. But this was the first one I, that I actually was scheduled to work that I was able to watch on TV. Um, and the day and age we're in. So that's, that's my third broadcast I've missed. But by the time this is all said and done, uh, it'll be seven total because I can't do any of the five on this road trip because of uh, close contact uh, pro uh, COVID protocols. So that's what it is. That's something. Yep. Murph, uh, one of the things we like to dig into when we talk to our friends, uh, we like to peel back the layers and let people know how they got into journalism and the industry. Uh, what, what sort of drew you into the television side of things and, and eventually covering hockey? Well, I went to the uh, University of Ottawa with no foresight uh, at all uh, into broadcast journalism. However, at the time in the summers, I would come home and a good friend of mine's brother worked at the local uh, Rogers Cable uh, station. And they were one of the first to have a sports mobile so we would go call high school basketball games. Uh, we would go call Muay Thai fights just because they were looking to get this, this uh, mobile in action. So we did a rock video show like we did everything. So that's when I kind of started thinking about it's something I might want to do. And I was, you know, I loved sports in you know, high school and college. I couldn't get enough information. Uh, so I went to BCIT. I got accepted to the program. And I'll kind of just go Cole's notes now. Uh, out of that, I joined Sports Page in 1995 as like a production assistant, like eight hours a week. But the funny thing is I worked on the weekends, four hours Saturday, four hours Sunday. And my anchor at that time that I worked with was John Shorthouse, who I, of course, work with to this day. Um, and so uh, behind the scenes there for four years, worked my way up to a show writer and producer, but never could get on the air. So I was thinking that, Maybe production was going to be my uh, path in the business. Uh, in 99, I accepted a job with the Golf Channel, which was just kind of getting going to produce Golf Central. Uh, but as I was getting my immigration papers, Sportsnet called and hired me as a reporter. So uh, that's kind of how I got in. I did the Grizzlies for a year first, and then I got moved to the hockey beat. And I've never really left. Had a couple opportunities to go east, 
uh, but always stayed on the West Coast. Uh, family here, and my wife had a great job here, so uh, that's kind of it. Never, never really moved once I got the Canucks job. I find that so fascinating that you were, you know, a, a basketball reporter hosting. In fact, I think it's, I, I was watching the documentary Finding Big Country. Yeah. And I, I did that uh, Leo DiCaprio meme where he's holding the beer and pointing up at the TV. <laughs> and I was like, there's Murph. Murph's yeah. up there. 29, 26 into that, you pop up in there. Well, what was the difference between uh, breaking in, you know, compared to we, most of us, like I believe both Ken and I broke in kind of dealing with hockey players. Mm -hmm. You broke in with basketball in an untraditional basketball market. What was it like going from, you know, starting out with basketball players and then moving on to hockey players? Well, I mean, I was probably a bigger basketball fan in high school than I was a hockey fan, if we're being honest. Um, so it was a, it was a job that I really welcomed. Um, but, you know, to it was my first kind of hosting job. And, you know, a big part of our jobs now, guys, is uh, talking with the athletes, uh, getting nuggets, getting little stories. I was probably a little bit shy back then. I, I wasn't aggressive enough with some of these guys. You know, it was, it was my first job. So it was a lot different that way in the fact that <clears throat> the access was there at shoot-arounds and stuff. But I didn't, you know, in one year, I didn't really create any relationships uh, with the players other than on the surface and getting certain things. Uh, so I didn't really have, with only being doing it for one year, I didn't have time to really, uh, you know, make some of those relationships with the guys that had been there, uh, and were there long-term like Sharif or Michael Dickerson or Mike Bibby or even big country. So, uh, that was the only difference. So once I got into hockey, you get a few years, you get to know the guys, you travel more, they see you on the road. And so I think it's a lot easier, uh, when you have time to kind of establish those things. So that was the biggest thing. And, you know, there's only really in the, in the NBA on a team, there's only like five or six guys you're going to talk to a day. Mm. Uh, whereas the NHL, in the old, good old days, you go in the locker room and you can sneak in and talk to someone that nobody else wanted to talk to. Uh, and that wasn't really possible uh, covering basketball, but I loved it. I, I grew, I grew very sour when the team left in the, mm. in the fashion that they left. Uh, and you know, as I got older, my, my viewing has changed for what I choose to watch. You know, we have families and stuff. You can't watch everything anymore. So, I will watch the NBA when it's on the playoffs. I still think it's the best league when it comes to drama and the players. Uh, but uh, my love for the game dipped a little bit when the when the team left Vancouver. I was going to say too, I mean, Murph, that's a subject that's obviously dear to people in Manitoba. I mean, seeing the way that the Jets left. I mean, obviously we know basketball wasn't the number one sport there, but what was it like to see how the community reacted to losing that franchise? You know, there was a lot of buzz around them when, when they did come. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, people say it couldn't work here is totally wrong. A Pacific Rim uh, city, you know, uh, with uh, the Asian interest in basketball is massive. Um, it was just a very poorly run franchise. Um, the GM made a number of terrible moves, um, never really understood the market. Uh, it got sold to a guy that never wanted to keep it here and ran the losses into the ground until the, the league let him leave. So I think there was a lot of people that were ticked off. I mean... All you have to say about Stu Jackson, a nice guy, but he refused to trade uh, the fourth overall pick in the draft, uh, which turned out to be Antonio Daniels for Steve Nash. And Nash at the time had not really broken on the scene, but he was looking to get out of Phoenix, um, you know, before he went to Dallas and he wouldn't do it. So I think his answer was, I'll never make that trade just to sell tickets. Well, it turned out he could have had a guy that was from here that was two-time NBA MVP. Uh, but yeah, just bad decision after bad decision. And then a swindler bought the team. Uh, with never really intending to keep it here and ran the losses up so much that the league finally let them leave. Because I, I don't think you can say 
especially now with any, I don't think you can, you can argue that Memphis is a better basketball town or sports pro town, a pro sports town than Vancouver. I just don't see it. Murph, one thing I think is interesting as I got into this industry and started meeting the people that I saw on TV, a lot of times you take a look at someone, you get an ID in your head that they're, you know, that guy, he must look like this. He might like Earth is a great example. I thought Earth was probably about five foot eight. He's like <laughs> six foot five or something like that. I myself am about six foot six, 260 pounds, right, Ken? Of course. <laughs> but uh, meeting you, Dan, like you're, you're a pretty big guy. You clearly hit the gym. When I talk to guys like Billy Duke, he always says in the morning, when he'd call you for assignment you'd be coming back from the gym already when he was worried if you'd be up um where's that come from or do you have an athletic background or how'd you get to kind of being a guy who takes as good a care of himself as you do uh, i mean i played like all of us i played a lot of sports growing up and then when i went to university it wasn't the frosh 15 i got like the frosh 50 like my <laughs> head was like a pumpkin um and i like and I, I was just one of those people that you're always in shape when you're younger you could eat what you wanted um, you know, you could do whatever you wanted. And, but then first year university was when it got me all the beer and the pizza. And so basically when I came back that summer, first summer, I had a good friend that was into the gym. He started taking me and I just kept going. I mean, I don't have a body for the gym. I'm tall and skinny, but I've always enjoyed it. Um, I'm an early riser. I like getting it out of the way. Um, so that's just kind of one of the things I've kept. And, and as you guys know, when you travel a lot, as we do in, you know, most times, I have a rule and I've given this to Ray Ferraro and he says he's since um, he's since taken it into account too. You know, you can consume your bad calories one way via food or via booze. I'll yeah. always eat right. I'll always work out because I'm not going to give up the beer and the wine. So you have to work out. You have to eat right if you want to have the beer and the wine, especially when you're, you know, north of 50 like I am now. One of the biggest things about COVID is the inability to have those meetings, right? Murph, I mean, one of the best yeah. parts about traveling, being in the bubble in Edmonton, was being able to go and have a meal and have some laughs. And uh, what's it been like on the on the mental side? I mean, I know now we're back to traveling a little bit, but what was yeah. it like for you to kind of deal with that that side of the business and having to cover games from from home or in an empty arena? Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, it's not nearly as fun. Like I, I did in Edmonton, I was there. I was not in the bubble, but I covered the playoffs. I think I was there four or five weeks uh, that first playoff. So it was that was fun just because we were back covering hockey, right? Uh, however weird it was, what wasn't weird at that time? I found last season hard with the empty buildings um, just because there wasn't the excitement level. And I was so fired up for this season because it was back to normal. And here we are again, uh, trying to get back to normal. So, I mean, I'm happy that we're working. I'm happy that they're playing. I hope that the, the latest uh, wave here uh, kind of peaks quickly and goes away because there's nothing quite like a full building and the fans and that atmosphere, especially, you know, for the players, but even for the broadcasters where there's an extra buzz, where it's a lot easier to, to get excited, to have that emotion before a game. So I, I won't lie, it was difficult, uh, but at least we were stay, still able to work, which a lot of people really couldn't. Murph, one of the things that endeared you to me among a whole bunch of things was when I found out that you were a metalhead and I was a metalhead when I grew up. And I do remember there was a point like in my early 20s, I had long hair and I just wasn't ready to give it up. I wasn't ready to like work for the man kind of thing. And at some point, I, I feel like a lot of the metalheads I know kind of had that attitude. I, I'm wondering how being a metalhead, the kind of music that you like shaped you growing up and and if there were ever any of those tough choices where you kind of had to leave some of that behind to put on the very polished public persona that you present well, well believe me i've had a lot of bad hair uh, over the over the years and i will continue to this day because i find it funny 
Um, but no, I, I, I remember like uh, the moment uh, Master of Puppets came out when I was in high school. And the first time I heard the song Battery, that was it. I mean, I'd never heard anything that fast or that hard. And that's the path I went down. And I'm still exploring it. Like, I'm not a big concert guy, but if there's like smaller shows, we have a, a, a theater here called the Rickshaw where a lot of like, you know, kind of heavy metal bands that people wouldn't know, like uh, from, you know, from Sweden or, or Finland. So I'll, I'll try to catch one of those every once in a while, but it's just kind of, I, I don't listen to a ton of music, but when I listen to music, it's in my car or at the gym. So I think it's always just kind of fit, uh, you know, that kind of style for me. Uh, uh, I still listen to it this day. Some of the newer stuff, uh, I still enjoy it, um, but I still will go back to my roots and, and listen to those old Metallica albums when I have a chance. Metallica Live, uh, seeing Lars uh, give her on the drums. Uh, that's that's uh, quite a scene. Been fortunate to Good see stuff. a few of those shows. And yeah. uh, one of the classics, we were on a family vacation in Hawaii and we saw James Hetfield in one of the tiny little surfing towns at lunchtime. And I didn't want to bother him, but in my head, I'm thinking, man, you guys got to come back to Winnipeg. <laughs> and uh, the server had no idea it was him, right? I mean, the yeah. anonymity is such a big part of it. Uh, Murph, I mean, one of the other things you did on the side, I mean, you partnered with Sean Pronger to write one of the funnier books uh, mm. around Journeyman. I don't just say that because I was fortunate enough to make a cameo. But uh, what was the writing process like and what was it like working with Sean, who uh, we both know is one of the uh, all-time uh, great human beings uh, in the sport. Yeah, I, mean, I think our, our writing process was probably different than a lot of people that write for an athlete because we knew each other so well. And, you know, I could have told all those stories because I'd heard them so many times from him uh, late into the night. So our, our writing process, I know a lot of people, they'll interview their subject for five hours, go back, write something, go back, interview again. But we, like he would write 2,000 words and send it to me. I had, you know, flushed it out to 4,000 words, sent it back with a bunch of questions. He'd send some other stuff back. I'd send some back. So we kind of just, we grew it that way where he did a lot of writing too. And I polished it up and added some stuff. So our writing process was a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. And at that time I could do a lot on the plane, like after games. So we had a blast. I mean, it, it kind of came to uh, during the 2010 Olympics, uh, his family was staying with our family uh, in Vancouver. And we just thought, Hey, why don't we, why don't we try this? You've got a lot of great stories and, so we went through with it. I mean, you write a book in Canada, it's not a real uh, money-making venture. You know, I'll still get the hot check for like $80 or something like that. Hey, the book's still selling. But, um, but yeah, it was still a lot of fun. I'm not sure I would, I would write another one at this point. Uh, I don't think I have the depth of writing skills to write anything, but something that might be a little bit funny. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy we did it. And I think we're up to like 15,000 copies sold, uh, all hardcover, soft, and uh, ebook. So... Not too bad for, you know, a guy who's, whose brother is way better known than he is. I got to say, I read the book. I absolutely loved it. I got such a kick out of the cameo by Ken Weeb in there. That was something. <laughs> I also got a kick out of it because my dad is from Dryden, Ontario. Um, and that's where Sean Pronger and Chris Pronger are from. And it begs the question, uh, and you've explained this to me before, but I'm sure our mm -hmm. audience would like to know, how is a guy from Abbotsford, BC, end up being buddies with a guy from Dryden, Ontario? Well, I went to University of Ottawa, as you know, in the first year I lived in a dorm. Um, and two guys on my floor were from, well, one from Dryden, one from Vermilion Bay, but both super tight with the Pronger boys um, uh, growing up. So, you know, I would go visit my friends in the summer in Dryden, and that's when I got to know them. And then, you know, with the way my path and my career went, it was just super easy to stay in touch with these guys because I saw them all the time, especially Chris. Uh, you know, I see him four times a year for, you know, two decades. So 
uh, that's kind of how the relationship grew. Um, one of my best friends in university, uh, she ended up marrying Sean. That was Marnie. Um, uh, cause of course he went to Bowling Green. So I, I, I met them early on in my university days and the friendship carried through and I'm a little bit bummed with this COVID protocol because I had, I had bought a, I was supposed to be in Toronto this week for this five game road trip because the team was on the road, but I was going to be in studio and I had bought a non-refundable ticket not too long ago for leaving Monday morning, Toronto to St. Louis, coming back Tuesday morning, St. Louis to Toronto for a broadcast that night because Chris's jersey is being retired in St. Louis mm. on Monday. So uh, that non-refundable is, uh, is going to go <laughs> the way of the, the dodo bird. And I don't think there's any chance I can make it there for that now. I'm still going to try. I'm going to take a test on Saturday and see if I'm negative. And if I am, I'll try to get down to St. Louis for it. But I'm a little bit bummed. I'll be missing that. Yeah, well, too. I mean, Chris is such an interesting character, too. I mean, I, I know Sean because I covered the moose when he was around. I've got to know Chris a little bit, too. And, you know, the Jets were the same division. I mean, when he was around the team. I mean, what was it like to sort of see him getting honored. And I mean, he's a guy who, I mean, the game is better when Chris is involved in it. And I hope that he gets back into it in, in some, some regard. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just, he had such an interesting path considering how his career started in, in Hartford and, you know, some law troubles a couple of times traded for Shanahan, you know, the, the St. Louis crowd hated him when he first got there just to rise the way he did to be one of the best defensemen of his generation. Um, and you're right. I think he's one of the, he's a very bright mind, I'm not sure what he's looking to do. I think that probably he's got in his head that he'd like to get into management of some sort. But in the meantime, he started a business with his wife there uh, in St. Louis. The kids are, you know, getting close to being all out of the house. So I think he's going to run with that for a little bit. But I think he's always got his eye out for the right job. I think he liked what he did in Florida as a senior advisor. But the, once um, Dale was gone, there was no path for him to move forward. So. I think he's probably just waiting for the right opportunity to, to get back into the game in a fashion like that. So Dan, you talked earlier about cultivating relationships and then you brought up Sean Pronger and you mentioned Bowling Green. It's get, giving me uh, everything swirling and it makes me think of Kevin Bieksa, right? Who yeah. went to Bowling Green. We had him on this very podcast last week. Uh, there was a line that he gave uh, where he was talking about Ken. I asked him about Ken Weeb and he said, look, I always had respect for Ken and he was always fair to us. Not like some of those guys in Vancouver. And he clearly had issues with a lot of the media in Vancouver. One guy he <laughs> didn't have issues with was you you guys had a phenomenal relationship um i used to get such a kick you know like you'd be doing your show opener and he'd come down the the hallway behind you and give you a bump on live tv and stuff like that i got such a kick out of the relationship that you guys clearly had as i'm sure most uh canucks fans did mm -hmm. um Give us a little bit of an idea of, you know, maybe some of the best relationships that you feel you've cultivated over the years with the Canucks. Yeah, well, I mean, Kevin's obviously right at the top of the list because, you know, he was basically there the, the same time that I was there, especially when I was starting out. He came in a couple of years after um, and he was such an interesting guy because there'd be times you, you know, fly somewhere on the road and he would say, OK, what are you guys doing to myself and Shorthouse and Garrett? He'd come for beers with us because he wanted someone different to talk to. So that relationship really grew organically into a, into a good friendship. And of course, on the broadcast, he was so easy to work with because he would always give you something. He'd always make fun of you. He'd always bump into you. Uh, he'd always, you know, he'd make the broadcast more enjoyable. So that was one, um, you know, Sean was here for a very short time, but I knew him ahead of time. Uh, early on, like Jason Strudwick's just a fantastic guy, uh, remain friends to this day. Uh, and the Sedin twins too, right? Like they came in a year before I started. And they left just a couple of years ago. So uh, those are two guys that I still keep in, in contact with. 
uh, not every day, but you know, you get the, you know, when I got into COVID protocol, like literally one of the first texts I got was from Henrik Sedin asking how my family was doing. Mm -hmm. So there are certain guys you, you make friends with throughout the years and you, and you stay friends with, and you don't talk to them all the time, but you know, you send a text to, you know, Roberto Luongo when the team's down in Florida, see how he's doing or, or stuff like that. So there's been a lot when you're with a team for that long, uh, you certainly make it, you make it with a lot of support staff too, with the teams as well. Uh, but those would be some of the names that I would come up with uh, right off the bat. Tyler Bauk, too. Let's go with that one. Another one of the great former Moose uh, human beings there. Uh, Murph, I mean, we saw it here in 2018 when the Jets went on their run. I mean, I was in the building for Game 7 in 2011. I mean, what's it like when, when sort of the whole country kind of gets behind a team and, you know, they get so close to the pinnacle? And uh, what was that like to be covering that whole experience? Well, I think the whole country was behind the Bruins at that point, if you remembering correctly. Um, but I'll say one thing. It was tiring. It was exciting. But, man, like when you think about the travel, because you're not, uh, in, not on the charter at that point, like in the regular season. So seven games first round Chicago and back. Uh, second round, it was only five games with Na or six games with Nashville, but you're going back and forth, uh, no direct flights. Then San Jose, which was a little bit closer, and then seven games to Boston. By the end, I was like, "Oh my goodness, I am gassed." But it was it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, as you said, you're just kind of run on adrenaline. Uh, you're trying to cover it as best as you can. There were so many great characters on both of those teams in the finals that have made it so easy to cover, so easy to come up with storylines. I mean, they just wrote themselves. Um, you know, and you know, I. I'm way past the point of caring who wins and loses. I mean, when the team's winning, my job's a lot more fun, obviously. Uh, but as you guys know, you just can't take anything home. Like if you're a kid, if you're 25 years old, maybe it's different. But I was disappointed for certain players. And we mentioned them. Like I would like to see the Twins win, Bieksa win, Luongo win. Like a lot of these guys, Sammy Sallow, that have been there for a while, you would like to see them uh, get a Stanley Cup ring. But it doesn't happen for everyone. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a great ride for the media. Uh, as it was for the players, but when they, when it was over, I was I was happy it was over. <laughs> yeah, you nailed what it's like to be a reporter, right? Like you, you're you're not pulling for the crest on the front of a jersey anymore. You're pulling for the name on the back of it. It becomes about the players and the good people who you feel like deserve that kind of stuff. Um, and it's interesting too, Ken, because Bieksa last week we asked him about this, and he said the same thing. His first reaction after they lost was, "You're just tired," and he was almost happy it was over. That's great stuff. Um, I wanted to get into this with you because uh, we're here in the West. We're the same as you guys, not quite the same, but we know what it's like, especially I think in Winnipeg, we know what it's like to kind of be overlooked and the, the smaller <laughs> guys and, and, you know, Toronto's the center of the universe and we get that. I've always got this sense and you're a Vancouver media member. You're from Vancouver. I think you're as qualified to answer this out there as anyone, but that kind of feeling that you get between Vancouver and Toronto where Vancouver, I think, looks at Toronto and says, you think you're so important, don't you? And that, that kind of rivalry between the two of them, being kind of right in the middle of the most important sports team in Vancouver and being right at the heart of them for so long, kind of describe to me maybe the little bit of the rivalry that exists uh, between Toronto and Vancouver and maybe more so for the people of Vancouver than the people of Toronto. Well, I mean, I'll say one thing. I mean, it, at least now, the Leafs warrant the coverage they get, right? I mean, they're one of the best teams in the league. They have been for a few years now. It used to drive me crazy when, because we used to have a show out West here when Don Taylor hosted it. Um, and sometimes the rundown, it would drive me crazy that, you know, this team that was at the bottom of the standings, they were trying to jam into the top of the lineup when at that time the Canucks were very good. And so we would fight for the lineup 
uh, on a daily basis of where where something should run, uh, you know, why it should be ahead of something else. But you're dealing with people that live in Toronto and are filling out the lineups and you know, they think that a fourth liner there is more important than a second liner in Vancouver, right? That's just the way it is because the numbers bear it out. More people live out there. I mean, it is the cash cow. So, but yeah, there was always, I mean, I don't fight for it nearly as hard anymore because we don't have a regional show. Um, you know, it's all national, so it's slotted accordingly. And the team hasn't been very good for six, seven years. So, you know, you can't argue that they deserve to be ahead of the lease in the right down anymore. But uh, yeah, certainly, I mean, um, there was times, especially back in like the, in 2008, 2009, 2010, that you felt like the, the team deserved more coverage than it was getting on a national level. But what can you do? I mean, that's just the way it is. That's why when the Leafs come to Vancouver, the, the start time is at four o'clock, not seven o'clock. And I get it. I mean, you got to pay the bills. You got to get the most eyeballs you can as possible. And the Leafs, they drive the numbers. I mean, as much as we hate to admit it, that's the truth. Yeah. Murph, a lot happening around the Canucks, obviously coaching change, managerial changes. I mean, what's it like to see the new group coming in and what direction do you think Jim Rutherford will be taking the organization? Because there sounds like there are still some more changes to come. Yeah. I mean, I, I, first I feel bad for Travis Green, um, especially the last two weeks of his tenure, uh, you know, going out there knowing that there was a coaching search underway already. You know, he's a dead man walking, must have been tough to get through the players. They couldn't catch a break. They couldn't win a game. I don't think that they lost the room. They were playing hard. Uh, so I will say that. I don't like to make it a coaching referendum of, of Bruce versus of Travis at this point. But clearly the team, a breath of fresh air, Bruce comes in. There's a weight off their shoulders. There's a new direction. So I think that's been very good. I think they have implemented some changes that have helped uh, stylistically with this team and, and who they have. Uh, but I think this road trip is going to tell the tale. And Jim Rutherford in his opening press conference, which was, you know, uh, what was that, November, um, basically said, looked ahead and said, I think we'll have a good read on our team when we're done this deathly road trip uh, that they're on right now, right? Florida, Tampa, mm. Carolina, Washington, and uh, Nashville. So like five of the top six teams in the league. Um, so I think that he's going to probably get a good read of what he wants to do going forward. He's doing his, I think he's finally getting down to face-to-face for who's going to be his general manager. I think he wants to hire at least one more AGM, perhaps two. So he's still trying to flush all this out. And then they have to make what will be some tough calls on this team. I mean, I think we all know what the flaws are on this team. I don't think anybody thinks this is a Stanley Cup contender. Um, But they do have some good pieces. Now it's up to him to decide uh, which ones will be part of the, the solution moving forward and which ones won't be part of that. Yeah, you got to wonder if the Canucks are about to go through what Calgary just went yeah. through after Christmas. It's a real wake-up call playing those Florida teams in Carolina. Yeah. Um, we talked about it off the top of the show. You've been doing this with the Canucks for two decades. Um, we haven't, or Sportsnet hasn't had the hockey contract for a full decade. So I, I wonder for you what that moment was like when you'd done regional for as long as you did and still do. I wonder what it was like for you uh, the first time you got to work hockey night in Canada. It was special, and I remember it. It was, it was in Phoenix. Uh, it was a, a Hockey Night in Canada, a Saturday night game, the Canucks uh, versus the, the Coyotes. I remember being between the benches. I was uh, standing there with Tyson Nash uh, as he was getting ready to do his interview, and you know, was, we were both looking at the mic flag kind of giggling because that's, you know, it was always kind of the pinnacle of getting to do one of those games if, if you ever got a chance. Um, so that was super cool. I'll say that you know, maybe the best experience I've had 
uh, with Hockey Night would be covering the first two Vegas playoff rounds of their inaugural season, right? It was versus L.A. and versus San Jose. Uh, and getting to do those two in that building was incredible. And I think probably still the most fun I've had doing this job. Because, of course, when the Canucks went on their run, I was reporting. I was not hosting the broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> excuse me. So the first time I remember getting Hockey Night was it was a pinch me moment. Um, knowing that you know, there's a show you watched all your life growing up uh, and that you're finally going to be a part of it. So I do remember it vividly, specifically. Awesome, Murph. But last one for me, I mean, uh, the game, we talk about it, and we were just talking about with Stephen Wino. It's, it's such a team sport. Do you see there being a little bit more openness to players showing personality moving forward? Or what's going to take for the league to get to that point in terms of maybe trying to grow the game the way the NBA has through doing just that? Yeah, I think certain guys are comfortable with it. Um, certain guys aren't right. Um, and I think, um, the problem being is that I, I feel that sometimes when guys show their personality, they get dragged back into not being a team player, even though that's not the case. Um, you know, Elias Pettersson, um, was doing a lot more social media stuff last season. And then he came back this year, said he was going to calm down a bit because maybe it took away from his on ice product. So I think there's a very fine balance, but I mean, the best way to grow the game is to sell the players and to sell their personalities and make people care about who they're watching. I mean, I, I know that people are going to watch their favorite teams, but if you're going to get you know more fans in, you have to draw them into some of the great characters this game has. And I know not everybody's comfortable with that. Like a guy like Conor McDavid, that's not his style, right? He's not going to be the one that's doing that. But there are players out there that can, uh, maybe not the very top of the food chain, but close to it that are going to be able to uh, you know, sell themselves and sell the game in a way that you can't with just a team. Murph, I find the Canucks fan to be a very interesting <laughs> hockey fan. They stand out there. I think you, I think you spelled manic wrong. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But I mean, the way that they fell for players like Pavel Bure, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the, 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 the way they fought for players like Trevor Linden and how a guy like Kirk McLean, you know, outside of that market is, you know, he had a great run, but outside that market, not a lot of people know him inside that market. Just absolutely in love with him. Give me an idea of what makes a Canucks fan a Canucks fan. Um, well, uh, first off, I'll just say, with the, as you're talking about players um, and the connection, you know, certain players just connect to a fan base. And, uh, I mean, you, you, Linden was one, obviously. Um, you know, McLean was one because of that run. Uh, you know, a guy like Alex Burroughs, you know, who's absolutely beloved as much as anyone from that 2011 team because, you know, he might have been an a-hole, but he was an a-hole that represented the city and didn't care what everybody thought, right? So... That's, you know, Canucks fans are very, um, I mean, it's tough to say when you have, you have the online world and you have the, the offline world, but very critical of the team, uh, very hard on the team, but they are very supportive of their players, especially the ones that they feel uh, will, you know, lay it on the line for, for their team. So I think it's a very intellectual fan base. I think it's a very manic fan base. I think, you know, they've had some real tough times. Three trips to the cup finals, twice going game seven, never won one. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a complicated fan base to say the least. But if you're a player in this market and you captivate the fan base, you'll never, ever, ever be forgotten. 
Murph, uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you. I got to say, I've never said this to you before, but uh, you were talking about that around 25-year-old window when people dive into hockey. When I was in university and before I was on my way to being a phys ed teacher, I was student teaching and everything. And then I crashed all that and decided to try and get into this. But I remember the Canucks were a great team at the time. It was the Bertuzzi-Naslin years. And I remember staying up late at night and watching your reports. And I was a big fan of yours back then. So never said it to you before, but getting to work alongside you at Sportsnet has always been a real honor. And it's been a real honor to have you on here tonight uh, or today. Uh, Really appreciate you making the time. Well, thanks for having me. And when we were talking about players we had relationships with, we can't forget. Can you you got to move it over. There Bomber. we go. There you Nolan go. Bomber. There you go, there you go Manitoba Moose. Nice work. Nicely nice done. We have to get him in there. I can't forget about him either. So, thanks guys, for thanks bringing so much that. for having me on. Anytime. Awesome Thanks so much, Murph. Hey, he was our other great white whale. Bieksa kept, we couldn't get him on. And Murph was the other guy we've been trying to get on for a long time. So thanks so much for joining us, Murph. See you soon. Cheers, boys. we can get to St. Louis. Hopefully that works out. Uh, I know. Yeah. I hope so too. Negative. Test negative. Bye, boys. <laughs> um, there you go. Another successful show. What'd you think? Yeah, great fun. I mean, uh, I'll, circle back to Stephen quickly, but uh, Murph's always a great guy. I mean, Murph's a guy who, when I was covering the Moose, he was always very supportive and a guy that I could reach out to and um, always appreciated that about him. And it was nice to spend a little bit of time with him in Edmonton that August uh, during the qualifying round. Um, yeah, just an, an awesome human being and, uh, you know, a guy with great passion for for what we do. And uh, back to Stephen. Stephen is a, is a great friend. Uh, the only time we ever argue is when it comes down to who gets to choose the restaurant. Um, both as you found out yourself telling the story at the very beginning, uh, he's, a, he's very much in the social convener department. Yes. Um, yes. same as, same as myself. We both take a he's, lot of pride. He's in, the American we, Ken Weeb. We he's the American of, Ken Weeb. We sure. both take a lot of pride in that. Uh, he's also the creator of the Stephen Wino, uh, quote loop, uh, the thing that I send you every day with the quotes yep. from the players. Uh, he was the initial, uh, initiator of that, uh, sort of thing. And that's something that happens right through the Stanley cup final. Uh, and, one thing other people don't know about Stephen Wino is uh, he came and joined me uh, when it was time. As some people know, I've been to all 30 MLB parks. Yes. Uh, I love baseball as much as hockey. And uh, Stephen, we were both in Dallas for the draft. And uh, Stephen flew in to Houston, Texas uh, for that uh, game that allowed me to complete the cycle. Uh, he knew it was an important thing for me. And uh, he was there right by my side. And we had a great day at the ballpark. Uh, Garrett Cole pitched for the Astros, had a great uh, steak dinner afterward, uh, uh, may have tossed back a, a nice a celebratory uh, bottle of wine. But uh, now with the Texas Rangers having a new park, uh, we have another place that uh, we need to get to. Hopefully there is a uh, potentially a Jets and Dallas Stars playoff meeting or a, a meeting that happens during baseball season because uh, I have to recomplete the structure now. So. Uh, just yes. a great guy and a guy it's got a great story and he's got great passion i mean he covered that 2015 series jets and ducks um he's been around the you know covering the jets a lot and a uh, guy really loves the game and uh has just been a, become a really good uh, good friend of mine and I, I love being able to share these people with our audience because uh, i think they've really started to enjoy it and uh, before I step away from the buffet, we have to say thank you uh, to our followers and listeners. Uh, great job on the t-shirt uh, drive. And oh, also, yeah. too, you talked about Kevin Bieksa with Murph. I mean, Kevin Bieksa's show is our biggest 
long form show that we've ever done. And that's yeah. because he really resonated with people both in our market and across the country and beyond. So uh, thanks to everybody for that. It was just an awesome uh, conversation and, and people are still sending feedback uh, as we go along and they're trying to get around to it if they didn't get to see it live or, or see it in the last week or so. So they're great. Hey, that was a great show. This was a great show. We love that. Someone had said in here, I think it was Lynn had just said something along the lines of <laughs> one of the good things about this show is getting to know the people behind the, the microphone, you know what I mean? And you can see with guys like that, you know, both, Murph and Wino, they're both really thoughtful guys. They put a lot into it. Like, I mean, talk about like trying to understand your audience, the breakdown that Wino gave of the, you know, the Washington hockey fans, Murph's breakdown of the Vancouver fans. Like these guys aren't just trying to relay information. They're trying to understand who they're talking to so they can better serve those people. And that to me is just signs of great journalists. Both those guys fit that entirely. I want to echo what Ken said. We're so happy with our t-shirt launch. And I noticed some people were talking about getting their merch. We can't wait for you to get it. If you've ordered some of those, we'd love it. If you'd take some pictures of yourself wearing the merch and sending it in, that would be great stuff. And we wanted to say, um, there's we can't report on anything specific right now, but the people at Sportsnet were so happy with how well we did with our sales. We have a merchandise meeting coming up on Monday where they want to expand the line and to add some new stuff to it. So we're, you know, we don't know what it's going to be yet, but we're going to be talking about maybe water bottles, maybe headbands, these kind of things, different different price points. So if uh, if you want something that doesn't cost quite as much, we're going to try and hit up all your merch uh, needs. So thank you so much for for uh, checking that stuff out. Thanks for for those of you who bought in. We really really do appreciate that. We appreciate your support. Uh, and we appreciate your support um, coming in here uh, and watching these shows, leaving your comments. Uh, it means the world to us. Thanks so much. And we're looking forward to doing it again with you tonight after the game as the Jets play the Detroit Red Wings. It's been a long time. Kenny, I feel good <laughs> talking hockey again. It's great. Yeah. Can't wait to do it later tonight. And can't wait to have all of you join us. Thank you so much for your time.